Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful. We thank you so much for the blessings of life, health, and strength. Dear God, we thank you for the privilege to worship you and to do it with such freedom. Because, Lord, these days truly are being numbered moment by moment. Help us, Father, to cherish these precious hours that we have remaining of probation. And help us, whatever we must do, teach us to do it quickly. As we hear the voice of the shepherd and as we hear him, may we follow him wheresoever he may lead. And I thank you that you've heard this prayer. And I ask you to please abide with us now and take our lives and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Fill us, we pray, with your Holy Spirit. And may he come and teach us. And open our eyes and help us behold wondrous things out of your word. Is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I would like to invite you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter, we're looking at chapter 1. And we're going to consider a very important passage of scripture. I would imagine even a familiar passage. But we're going to consider it once again. Because our study today is going to be based on Bible prophecy. And as we look at 2 Peter chapter 1, we just want to consider what the Word of God says. And we are going to look at 2 Peter 1 and we're going to consider verse 19. And when you are there, just please say, Amen. Amen. The Bible says in the book of 2 Peter chapter 1, we're looking at verse 19. And the Bible says, For we have also a more what? Sure word of prophecy, whereunto we do well to take heed unto it, as unto a light that shines in what kind of place? A dark place until something very special happens. It says until what? The day dawns and the day star arises within our hearts. The great grand purpose of prophecy is that it will shine like a light in a very dark, dark place. And it will literally lead us to none other than Jesus Christ. Anytime prophecy is preached... And it does not lead us into the arms of Jesus. Something is wrong with that prophetic utterance. The Bible is very clear that when God gave the gift of prophecy, he gave it to us as a means for us to see our need for Jesus Christ and to run to him as our only safety in these very last moments of earth's history. It is not a wonder that we are told in the book Evangelism, page 196, and this is for those who are taking notes, in the book Evangelism, page 196, we're told that ministers should present the sure word of prophecy as the foundation of the faith of Seventh-day Adventists. It continues by saying the prophecies of Daniel and the Revelation should be carefully studied. And it says, and with them in connection, the words, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is always to be the means by which we present Bible prophecy. And there's much to present because there's much that's happening. Right now, we are living in a time where many of God's people, not just the world, not just worldlings, but even God's people are being filled and overwhelmed with fear. There are many of God's people that are putting up a front and they're coming to churches and they're putting on these rose colored glasses and they're acting like everything's all right when they know deep in their hearts everything's all wrong. And I'm not simply talking about living contrary lives where we're professing righteousness, but we are indulging in sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about individuals that understand a bit about Christ, their righteousness, 
People who understand, yes, I know the word of God, I know God's promises, but somehow in their study life and in their devotional life, they have not found a refuge in Christ. And when they see the end time events coming in such incredibly rapid pace, there are many who are putting up a front before others and acting like everything's all right when their hearts are being overwhelmed and perplexed with fear. And that was not God's intention. We are told in that blessed little book, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, there is no fear in love for perfect love casts out fear. And there is nothing wrong that if you find yourself in a place where you are being so overwhelmed and so perplexed, what God is trying to help you see through that personal crisis is that his love has not been perfected in you. And if his love has not been perfected in us, then that is what needs to be the very, very forceful prayer of our lives is, Father, please help me to enter into an experience with you by which your love will become my love so strong that it will cast out every single fear that I have. Because we are told in Life Sketches 196, we have nothing to fear for the future. Except as we shall forget the way the Lord has led us and his teachings in our past history. When you find that you are becoming fearful of the future, God is letting you know then you must have forgotten the way he led. You must have forgotten his teachings in the past history of his people. And this is why it is so imperative in such a time as this in Earth's history that we have to get back to understanding biblical history, getting back to understanding how did God lead his people? How did God lead during the time when there was papal supremacy? We're living in a time right now where there are all sorts of agitations taking place that ultimately is going to bring everything back to papal supremacy. And so it is that we would do well to study the history of looking at the Reformation, looking at the Waldensians, looking at the Huguenots and all these various groups and how God kept them. Because we are told that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. And how he kept them in times past is how he will keep us. And that's why I say with all due respect, brothers and sisters, in such a time as this in Earth's history, I just want to lay this out in the front right now. This is not the time to give out great hope. This is the time to give out great controversy. Why am I saying that? I'm not saying that to insult any of those who created the great hope or whatever it may be. I am not here to read a man's heart. But what I'm telling you is that in the great hope, you don't get the Protestant history. And that this is a time we need the Protestant history. We need to understand how did God lead in the Reformation? How did God lead his people when they were living in a time of papal supremacy? And you can't get that in great hope, but you can get that in great controversy. And so it is that we need to get back to that book and we need to go back to those early chapters and we need to not deem it boring. We need to look at it with the highest of interest because we're watching how God led in times past. And that is my promise of how he's going to lead in the very closing scenes of Earth's history. And when I understand that, I have nothing to fear for the future. Because now I understand. Do you get it? Amen. So this is why history is so important. And history is important to the point that we know that inspiration tells us. Now, I'm so sorry that we can't get this one here for those of you on this side. As best as you can, try to work with the screen over here or just pay very close attention. But when we study biblical history... There is much that we could consider because the Bible makes a definite statement that literally governs all prophetic realities. It's found in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter one. And this one's on the screen here. And you will see that in Ecclesiastes chapter one, the Bible says the thing that hath been 
It is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there's how many things? There's no new thing under the sun. God makes it clear that no matter how much it appears like a brand new revelation to us, God says, no, there's nothing new under the sun. In one way, in some principle or another, it has been manifested in times past. And so it is the thing that hath been. That's the past is that which shall be. That's the future. And that which is done. That's presently is that which shall be done. That's future. And there's how many things? No new thing under the sun. History has a tendency to repeat itself. So when I think about that, it is not a wonder that Christ told us when studying prophecy and end time events and the nearness of his coming and the final crisis that he taught something in Matthew 24. So let's go to Matthew 24. Let's look at a very familiar passage of scripture that I would imagine we have read time and time again, but we are going to consider it. I believe God wants us not to simply know how to repeat words, but how to consider his words. The Bible says in Matthew, the 24th chapter. And when you get there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Matthew 24, starting at verse 37, the Bible says in Matthew, the 24th chapter, we're considering the 37th verse. And the Bible says, Matthew 24 and verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the son of man be. Now, if you just paused right there, contextually in Matthew 24, when you read a statement like that, it definitely is pointing out the fact that there's going to be a lot of evil behaviors that took place in the days of Noah that's also going to be repeated. And that was contextually what Jesus was showing in Matthew 24 here, because we're going to look at the next verse. But the good news is, is if the things, the situations, even the activities and behaviors of people are going to be repeated as it was in the days of Noah, then I would encourage you. And this is just a side note. I would encourage you study the life of Noah. Because the same way there's going to be wicked people like the antediluvians, there's also going to be righteous people like Noah. And the more that you study the character of Noah and what governed his mind during those times, you can start to see things that Christ wants to see reflected in us as his people in the very last moments of earth's history. Amen. Amen. Well, now we're looking at verse 38 In verse 38. Jesus says, for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. And so shall also the coming of the son of man be. Jesus gave very, very clear harbingers, if you will, to let us know how close is close. Because not only does the world want to understand what's coming next, there are many of God's people that don't understand what's coming next. And when I say there are many of God's people that don't understand what's coming next, I am speaking to the YouTube watchers and the Audioverse listeners. Why am I saying that? Because sometimes we have allowed blessings to become a curse. Let me repeat that. Sometimes we have allowed blessings to become a curse. I believe with all of my heart, Audioverse was designed to be a blessing and has been to many of us. Can you say amen to that? I believe YouTube was very much. It can be very much used to be a blessing. Has it not been so to many of us? Amen. But it is possible that a blessing can become a curse. Why? Because there are some of God's people that don't know end time events, except it be through the mind of another preacher or teacher that they heard on Audioverse or YouTube. And they are still neglecting to study to show themselves approved unto God. A workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I remember one time I was doing a training and I was doing a training and I asked the missionaries a question that normally the missionaries don't get right. And I was so happy that at this training. 
that I asked the question. I said, so what does this mean? And then next thing you know, everybody was looking at each other. They didn't know the answer. And I said, okay, that's typical. But then one person raised her hand and she raised her hand and she said, I know the answer. And I said, all right. I said, go ahead, tell me the answer. And I'm thinking, let's see if she gets it right. She gave the answer and it was 100% correct. Oh man, I was so happy. As a teacher, anybody knows, teachers get very happy when the students demonstrate that they have taught themselves well and have studied to show themselves approved. Is that right, teachers? I know there's some of you here. But so then I made her a spectacle in the class. After she gave that right answer, I said, I gotta make her a spectacle in the class. I said, do me a favor. I said, sister, stand to your feet. And she was just like, oh, okay. You know, she didn't expect that. I said, do me a favor. I said, tell everybody in the class how you arrived at that truth that you knew. And that sister hung her head down in shame. And I'm thinking, why is she hanging her head down? She got the right answer. And then she said, because it was, I was listening to a certain preacher on audio verse. <laughs> you get it? In other words, some of us, if we, if we were to carefully search our hearts, some of us go no further in our biblical understanding than what we consistently view or listen to and download. And we are allowing another man, another woman, another ministry to do the devotion for us that Christ wanted to be done one on one. And this is why sometimes we go ahead and boy, I'm going to show you some things today. For those of you who are going to stick around for all the seminars, when we do phase two, in other words, the second presentation from here, I'm going to show you that prophetically God is bringing seven day Adventists to the front. I'm going to show you how God is doing it right now. In a very powerful way in 2015, where he's literally bringing seven day Adventists to the front and brothers and sisters, that quote, you're going to see it. That quote says, and when we are brought to the front, it says, if our theories could be picked to pieces by theologians and the world's greatest historians, it will be done. So if ever there was a time to make sure that we know what we believe for ourselves, it is right now. So again, like I said, when we read Matthew 24, we look at verses 37, 38. Yes, we've heard it many a times. Yes, we've read it many a times. But we need to understand that there are people in the world and yes, people in the church that still don't understand how is everything going to go down in this world? How's everything going to close? We see signs. I got people coming up to me all the time. Brother Lemon, do you really think this is it? They ask that. Listen, I understand why. Because sometimes there are ministers in the past that under certain leadership, certain popes, we said this was it. Those popes are dead. Those leaders are gone. And God's people have a natural tendency to love to sleep and slumber. So once they see that the alarm is gone, the pope is dead. That dictatorial president is gone. Oh, that must mean we have plenty of time. And then God's people go right back to sleep. So what we need is to understand. I understand why Seventh-day Adventist so-called present truth brethren are also coming saying, hey, do you really think this is it? And you know why they're saying that? Because they don't know. And God wants you to know. We are told in the book, Great Controversy, page 598. We have a chart that points out every waymark on the heavenward journey. And we do not have to guess at anything. I want you to think about that precious promise, brothers and sisters. We have a chart, points out every way, Mark, on the heavenward journey. And we don't have to guess. I am so glad I don't have to guess what's coming next. All I got to do is faithfully look at the chart. And you know what that chart is? It's your Bible. The more that you and I learn how to study this book, brothers and sisters, you will find that it reveals wondrous things out of God's law. 
And so it is. When I thought about it, I said, okay, days of Noah, right? As it was in the days of Noah. And there was something that I picked up in personal study. I said, look at this. I said, this is a trend. So here's what happened. Number one, started looking at the days of Noah because Jesus talked about it. And he talked about how the flood came, took a lot of people unaware, and they were gone. Notice this. Did you know the people rejected God's message after 120 years of laboring? So let's go to those verses. Let's take a look at it. We're going to step by step go through scripture. I hope you don't mind. The Bible says in the book of Genesis, go to chapter six. We're looking at Genesis six. We're going to consider verses five, 11, 12. And then we're going to look at verse six. And I want you to see what the Bible says. Genesis. We're looking at chapter what? All right. We're going to Genesis chapter six. And we're going to look at verses five, 11, 12. And then we're going to look at verse six. And I want you to see what the Bible says here. And, I, and, and it was amazing as I started to do this study more and more that God was showing a trend of scripture that truly, when I look at what's happening in our world today, there is nothing new under the sun. Watch this. The Bible says in Genesis chapter six and verse five, it says, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Therefore, look at what it says in verses 11 and 12. It says the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for how much flesh? For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Then look at verse six. It says, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And this is when God made it clear, I'm not going to strive with man always, but I'll give him this, this probationary time period. Now, what did I look at that? When I began to look at that, I started to understand something. I looked up the word nation. And when I started looking up the word nation in the Bible, it can just basically talk about a group of people that are like minded on something. OK, so when I looked at this, it said how much of the flesh corrupted their way? All flesh. So when I looked at that, you know what that would be called in modern terms? National apostasy. It was national apostasy. The whole group, the whole body of people decided to apostatize against God and his word. As a result of this national apostasy, what happened? Notice what the Bible says next. It goes on to tell us now, as a result of the rejection, the people were what? Destroyed. Now, let's look at that. Genesis chapter six again. Notice what the Bible says. We're looking at Genesis six, seven and 13 and then chapter seven, 21 through 24. Notice the trend because watch this. The Bible says in Genesis six and we're looking at what verse seven and 13. The Bible says, and the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the airs. For it repented me that I have made them. Verse 13. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will do what? Destroy them with the earth. Then Genesis 7, 21 through 24. It says in Genesis 7, 21 through 24. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl, of cattle, of beasts, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, and all that was in dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle, and the creeping things, and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive and they that were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed upon the earth a hundred and fifty days. Notice as a result of national apostasy, it actually brought about national ruin. Now, this was something that I looked at because I said, could it be? 
You know, sometimes you sit down and you're thinking about God and his word. And as you're thinking, sometimes the Holy Spirit will begin to talk to you, like it says in Isaiah 50. And he will literally begin to speak to our minds. And the more that I started studying event after event, I said, wait a minute, this was deliberately put in scripture and this is a trend. So what we see here, national apostasy led to national ruin. Do you understand that? Then I went to the next group. The next group was Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Jesus didn't just say as it was in the days of Noah, he also said as it was in the days of Lot. So when I started to look at the days of Lot, again, I noticed the trend. The people rejected God's last message and messenger. They were even more emboldened in base practices. Now go to the book of Genesis 14. Notice this. We're going to the book of Genesis, the 14th chapter, and we're going to consider Genesis 14, 17 through 20. And then we're going to look at chapter 18 and onward. So in Genesis 14... And we're going to go ahead and look at verses uh, 17 to 20. And notice what the Bible says, because remember, the people rejected God's last message and messenger. I want you to catch that. Look at what it says. Genesis 14, 17 through 20. The Bible says, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Shadalamar and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the most high God. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the most high God, which hath done what? Delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Abram, when he saw that his nephew Lot was caught in his drama, Abram, you know, the Bible says, went and he went to deliver him. And when he went to deliver him, Abram was demonstrating. Ellen White calls it that Abraham demonstrated the righteousness of God. And it showed that righteousness of God does not equate to cowardice. So here it is that when we begin to look at this, Abraham was giving a demonstration of God and his power when he went to deliver his nephew. Now we're going to look at Genesis 18. And when we look at Genesis 18, consider verse 32 and then Genesis 19, 1 through 11. So the Bible says in Genesis 18 and verse 32, and then we're going to look at Genesis 19, 1 through 11. The Bible says in Genesis 18 and verse 32, it says, and he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak yet but this once, peradventure how many? Ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it even for ten's sake. This is, of course, when Abraham was pleading with God and he was asking God not to destroy Sodom if at least ten people could be found. Now, you have to understand when Abram, Abram always had a habit, a trend that if he went somewhere, he would leave an altar. He would leave something that was a demonstration of God and his power. So here it is that when Abram went into town, he obviously wanted a light of God and his truth to be there. Abram now is pleading before God and he's saying, Lord, if it be possible, if you could even find 10 people that are living righteously in Sodom, please don't destroy Sodom. God says, if I find even 10, I promise you I won't do it. And we know, unfortunately, he didn't find even 10. Because then when you look at Genesis 19, what does the Bible go on to show us? It says, and there came two angels to Sodom at even. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold, now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early, and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and he entered into the house. And he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. 
But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, where are the men which came in to thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may what? Know them. And they didn't want to get an understanding. They wanted to definitely know them like Adam knew his wife Eve. So this is definitely what we call an abominable practice. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Keep your finger here. Go to Ezekiel 16. Because sometimes when we talk about as it was in the days of Lot or the days of Sodom, and we begin to look at the realities of what's happening in the homosexual world and the homosexual community, and we say, there goes the days of Sodom. But brothers and sisters, it might be that we were hit blindsided. How do I know that? Ezekiel 16. When you go to Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, remember, you're keeping your finger on Genesis 19, but you're in Ezekiel 16. And if you're there, please say amen. The Bible says in Ezekiel 16 and verse 49, it says, behold, this was what? The iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Now watch what it says next. What was the first thing on the list? Pride. What was next? Fullness of bread. That's called gluttony, overeating. What was next? Abundance of idleness. What was next? They did not strengthen the hands of the poor. Is that right? All right, so look at it. It says, in, in her hands was abundance of idleness, was in her hand and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Did you notice that before we get to verse 50, there were already four things that was labeled that's called iniquity. The four things. See, what many of us do when we think of Sodom, we think of verse 50. You see, what does it say in verse 50? It says, and they were haughty and committed what? abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Many a times we focus more on the abominable acts than the things that led to the abominable acts. You see, before they started getting all caught up into their abominable acts, they were first proud people. They were gluttons. They had way too much time on their hands and they did not do anything to help those less fortunate. So could it be that when we look at these fourfold descriptions in verse 49 of Ezekiel 16, could it be that there might be some sodomites in even the church, even though they're not practicing homosexual abominations? Are you following? Sometimes we like to make majors out of one thing, but we forget some of those minors that lead to the majors. It was pride that ultimately got them to the abominable acts. It was gluttony. Let me tell you, tomorrow, my bride and I are going to have the privilege to stand before you. And we're going to talk a little bit about health. We're going to talk a little bit about cooking school evangelisms and how to take the plan of salvation and demonstrate it in a cooking school. Now, we're going to talk about that tomorrow. But one of the things that I want to bring out is that if we understood how food affects the mind and sexual based passions. If we understood the connection, it makes perfect sense why we're reading what we're reading in verse 49 of Ezekiel 16. The more that an individual is proud, indulges in appetite, and has tons of idle time, which is the devil's workshop, while there's the poor and the needy that are not being strengthened, it creates an atmosphere and ultimately a mindset that develops into a character that even some of the most base abominations will come in our face and will actually think it's attractive. So if you really wanted to help those in the homosexual community, it's not enough to just talk about homosexuality. We have to talk about pride. We're going to have to talk about temperance. We're going to have to talk about the importance of filling up those gaps of idle time 
And we're going to need to talk about the need to be selfless and self-sacrificial. Do you understand that? I'm a man of solutions, brethren. I hate it when people make a lot of beef about problems and don't have any solutions. I travel all over this planet, literally, and often I go to people, Brother Lemon, do you know what's happening in the church? Brother, do you know what's wrong in the church today? Do you see this? And they go through all these strange things, but then I always go to them. I said, you have done well in explaining the inspired problem. Now my question is, what's the inspired solution? And that's what I always like to ask these people, people who are professionals, who have doctorates and PhDs in complaining about what's wrong in the church. I said, all right, you got your degree, but let me ask you this. How well are you in understanding the solutions to these problems? Brothers and sisters, we have to understand, yes, we are living in the days of Sodom, no doubt about it. But God has raised us up to be part of the solution, not just a bunch of people to make a bunch of noise. And if we're going to go ahead and talk about the abominable practices of men with men and women with women, yes, we need to teach that. But brothers and sisters, you make sure you address that pride issue. You make sure that you address temperance in appetite. You make sure that you address all this idleness that we see so many, especially of our young people involved in. And we make sure, brothers and sisters, that we show them the importance of self-sacrificial service to those who need it. Now we're going back to Genesis 19. I wanted to bring that point out. Genesis 19. We're back there. So we see in Genesis 19 that as a result of them rejecting the message of Lot and the messenger, the Bible went on to say we were right there and we were talking about it. They wanted to go ahead and, and lay with these angels. Now we're in verse six in Genesis 19, verse six. It says, and Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you and ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came in to sojourn and he will needs be a judge. Now will we do deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut to the door. And they smote the men that there were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to even find the door. This, again, what was happening is you see another example of what we call national apostasy. Message after message, starting from Abram all the way through Lot, and yet they ignored the message. They did not take heed. And as a result of that, it led to national apostasy. They came together and said, we don't want to hear it. And they rejected it. As a result of rejecting it, what does the Bible say took place? We're in Genesis 19. Look at verses 12 and 13 and onward. It says in verse 12, and the men said unto Lot, hast thou here any besides? Son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Verses 24 and 25. It says, then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. As a result of national apostasy, again, it led to national ruin. So there's a trend that we see, and it's not just a trend, because even after this, brothers and sisters, Israel went into Egypt, didn't they? And when Israel went into Egypt, do you know, brothers and sisters, it says Pharaoh and his host reject God's last warning. Did you know that? Did Pharaoh get warnings? Yes. 
Oh, he got tons of warnings, brothers and sisters. You read back in Exodus 14, 1 through 10. In Exodus 14, 1 through 10, Pharaoh and his hosts get warning after warning after warning and demonstration after demonstration after demonstration. Pharaoh and his hosts reject the warning and it led again to national apostasy. Once it led to national apostasy, then lo and behold, Pharaoh and the Egyptians hosts are destroyed. In Exodus 14, 26 to 31. All of a sudden, I'm going a little faster and I'm going to go ahead and let you write the verses down. But listen. The reason why I take time going through the verses is this. There is something that, as far as I'm concerned is absolutely not even dangerous. It's deadly among Seventh-day Adventists. And that is to assume you know what I'm talking about. I've decided I'm not doing that anymore. So literally what I do is I'll put up the verses and I'm like, let's go through it. Because we're assuming we know the stories where a lot of times we don't know the stories. And sometimes we miss very intricate detail. But I'm watching my time as well. So I want you to write this down so that way you can know it. But then there's a second reason why I want you to do this. The second reason I want you to go through these verses is because my heart is the heart of a teacher. God put it there. And one of the things teachers want is not so much for you to hear, but teachers want you to hear and to hear it so well that now you can teach it to others. That's what a teacher wants. So the more that you have the verses, the more that you're looking at the verses, the more you're thinking about the verses, you can answer the question when you have that coworker, that relative or somebody else. And they say, what do you think the Pope's visit is, is going to uh, amount to? When you begin to say, what do you think America making a decision to go ahead and, and now give full sweeping license and say it's all right. Anybody can get married if they're gay all throughout the country. It doesn't matter anymore. Where is it leading to when this woman gets arrested? Because she makes a decision that she cannot let her conscience be violated and even through her work distribute something that violates her conscience. And now she's in prison. Where's all that leading to? When somebody starts to ask you those questions, do you know what God wants? He wants 1 Peter 3.15. You know what 1 Peter 3.15 says? The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. God wants you to really know how to walk people through truth. He wants you to break it down so they can understand what's going on, what's coming next, and then find the refuge before it's too late. Let's continue. So national apostasy, Pharaoh and the Egyptian hosts are destroyed. It led to national ruin. And over and over and over again, you see this theme. I'm again, I'm going to show it to you right here. Ancient Babylon. Same thing. When the children of Israel went into Babylon and they were captives. Same thing. You see the example through Belshazzar. He rejects God's last warning in Daniel 5, 17 through 24. He rejects it. And Babylon had tremendous witnesses to let the people know of God and his righteousness through the example of Nebuchadnezzar. Here it is that when Belshazzar rejects God's last warning, national apostasy. What came as a result of it? Well, we know the story. The Bible goes on to help us see it. Babylon has fallen and the king and the people are destroyed. Daniel 5, 25 through 31. So again, national apostasy led to national ruin. Over and over and over again. And I started looking even deeper. Did you know this not only applies to all these groups, it even applies to ancient Jerusalem. Even when you look at ancient Jerusalem, brothers and sisters, you see this theme over and over and over again. The leaders of Jerusalem reject Christ. Matthew 23, 37 through 39. They reject him. That's why Jesus was saying, oh, how long I would have gathered you like a hen would gather her chicks. But you would not. 
So then Jesus says, so now, behold, I leave your house unto you desolate. And when Christ did that, that was the last time he stepped foot in the temple. Well, here it is that when that happened again, that was a demonstration of national apostasy. They were turning away from Christ because apostasy means to turn away from the truth. And Jesus says, I am the truth. When you turn away from Christ, you have committed the greatest of apostasies. You understand that? So here it is that when they turned away, look at what happened next. Later on, we know the story in A.D. 70, Jerusalem was ultimately destroyed as Jesus prophesied and told us. And as a result of that, national apostasy again led to national ruin. Now, the reason why this is important is because let's go to Revelation 13. When we go to Revelation 13, we see a very, very biblical trend. National apostasy leads to national ruin. National apostasy leads to national ruin. Lo and behold, when you look at Revelation 13, notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in Revelation, we're looking at the 13th chapter. And in Revelation 13, we get the story of the two beasts. And notice what it says. It says, and I stood, starting at verse 1, and I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him three things. What did the dragon give him? Power. What else? Seat and great authority. Now watch this. It says gave him power, seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed. And how much of the world? Now, all the world wondered after the beast. Question. Who is this beast being spoken of here? This is none other than the papacy. All right. Papacy, better known as the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, the papacy. Now, here's the next question. Did they suffer a deadly wound? Yes. yes. Is the wound going to be healed? Yes. Is the wound healed? Yes. All right. Mixed multitude. Now, that's why I asked. I asked because I had a feeling. Okay, so watch this. There are some who say that the beast power did suffer a deadly wound, but that his wound would be healed. And then, of course, all the world would wonder after the beast. Now, I want you to watch this because the dragon gave the beast something. What did the dragon give him? It gave him power. What else? See, and great authority. What we don't really understand is that term power. The word power, you're about to see it. The word power actually paved the way for the seat and the great authority. In other words, if Rome never had power, the whole seat and great authority would never take place. It was only because of the power that it had its seat and great authority. So we need to understand that power a little bit more carefully. So now watch what John the Revelator does. John the Revelator does pretty much what God does throughout the Bible. You remember in Genesis 1, the Bible says in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, etc. Remember God said that? And then interestingly enough, when Genesis 2 comes in, then God in verse 7 says that, and God made man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, wait a minute. I thought he did that in Genesis 1. In other words, what happened between Genesis 1 and 2? It is a principle in Bible study called repeat and expand. You understand that? It's called repeat and expand. So God established it in Genesis 1, 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, etc. Then when you get to Genesis 2, God is repeating what he did in Genesis 1, 26. But now he's expanding. He's saying, now I got down on the ground and I decided to make man out of the dust and I breathed. You understand? He's repeating what he did in Genesis 1, 26, but he's expanding. The same principle is in Revelation 13. 
After God says this beast is going to suffer a deadly wound, his wound will be healed and all the world will wonder after the beast. God begins to repeat and expand. Watch how he does it. Revelation 13. The Bible says in Revelation 13, we're continuing now in verse four. It says, and they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power. What was given? And power was given unto him to continue how long? 40 and two months. This is the 1260 years. God is repeating what was already stated in Revelation 12, 13 and onward. God is repeating it, but now he's expanding. So now he says, so he gave him power for these 42 months. This is again the dark ages. So now watch this. So then it says, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. Watch this now. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And what? Power. Watch this. Power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and what else? Question. If somebody has power over a nation, what kind of power do they have? What's that called? That's political or civil power. Is that right? But now look at the next verse. It says, not only did he have power over the nations, it says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall do what? Shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Question. Is this worship that everybody's going to give to this first beast, is this worship something that is forced or is this something that the people are just doing willingly? Oh, it's forced, brothers and sisters, as you progress through Revelation 13, because there's going to be another player that's going to cause everybody to worship the first beast. Is that right? And notice in the dark ages, was Rome asking people to listen to them? No, Rome was doing what? Now, wait a minute. If somebody forces you to worship against your own conscience, what kind of power is that? That's religious power. Is that right? So notice, so when you look at this beast, does this beast have both civil and religious power? Yes. And when the beast had civil and religious power, that's how it developed its seat and exercised great authority. You follow that? It was able to exercise great authority over the people because it had the union of church and state. Now, since that's the fact, then when it says the beast will suffer a deadly wound, what power did the beast ultimately lose? The power of what? What did they lose? The power of church and state. But it says the deadly wound will eventually be healed. So if the wound is going to be healed, that means it's once again going to have what? Church power. And that power is going to be demonstrated in what? Church and state. Question, are we there yet? No. And you want to know why I know? Because I know that if they had that power, we wouldn't be here right now. And we would not have the freedoms we still have presently right now. We would not see a man doing everything possible to unite with everybody and even tell folks who are gay that he knows he has a standard that homosexuality is an abomination in the Bible. And instead of giving the definite answer, he will say, listen, I'm not here to judge anybody. 
He wouldn't have to yield and succumb to all that stuff if he already had his power back. You understand? So the wound is not healed yet. The wound is going through a healing process. Are you following? Now somebody's going to play the role. And watch what the Bible says in Revelation 13 now at verse 11. I thought that this was very interesting because notice what it says here. In Revelation 13, 11, it says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon, verse 12, and he exercises all the... All the what? Of the what beast? Now, what power did the first beast have? Church and say, so in order for the second beast to fulfill the rest of verse 12, it has to have everything Rome had. And it says it exercises, it didn't say some, it says it exercises all the power of the first beast. You follow that? So it exercises all the power of the first beast, which means that it must have church and state. And look at what the Bible says is going to happen when it has it. Verse 12 again. It says, and he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes. That word causes means force and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So when we look at the second beast, who is who? Who is the second beast? That is the United States of America. When we look at the second beast of Revelation 13, we see that a day is going to come when the United States of America is going to play a part in persecuting and prosecuting the people of God through the union of church and state. But then I wonder what's going to ultimately happen. Notice what the Bible says in Daniel 2. Now watch what the Bible says. Daniel 2. What's going to happen? Look at what the text says. Daniel 2. So notice what the Bible says now. We're looking at Daniel 2. This is why, again, as we stated before, when you study Daniel 2 in the image of the metal man, when you study it, when you get to the feet of iron and clay, the feet of iron and clay represents the mingling of church and state. That is the better interpretation. A lot of times for years, Seventh-day Adventists were taught the coined term that the feet of iron and clay represents the ten divided kingdoms of Western Europe. Brothers and sisters, it is not, listen to my words please, it is not limited to that. Do not limit the ten toes and the feet of iron and clay to simply the ten divided nations of Western Europe. You're not teaching faithful Bible prophecy. My word is limit. You heard me say limit, right? In other words, are the ten divided nations of Western Europe, is it inclusive to the feet of iron and clay? Yes. But is it limited to the feet of iron and clay? No. This is what the prophet meant in Evangelism 196. The prophecies of Daniel and the Revelation should be carefully studied. When you look at it, the ten toes exists until that final kingdom comes that crushes everything else. The ten divided nations of Western Europe don't. You understand that? That's why you don't want to limit it to that. So what we want to do is just understand it is a principle of church and state. Iron represents Rome, which was a political power. Clay, Jeremiah 18, 4 through 6. Romans 9. Isaiah 64, verse 9, all those Bible verses show clay represents God's people, God's church. So when you see feet of iron and clay, you're seeing a mingling of political and religious power. The reason the Bible says they shall not cleave is because when's the first time cleave comes up in the Bible? It's in Genesis. 
when there was a beautiful thing called marriage. And when that marriage ceremony took place, God says a man shall leave his father and his mother. And he shall cleave to his bride and they shall be one flesh. How long did God want the cleave to last? Forever. So when you think of cleave, you think of something that is permanent. So when the Bible says the feet of iron and clay shall mingle together, but they shall not cleave. God was saying it will not be permanent. It will not last forever. Why? Because Jesus is going to come and he's going to crush that kingdom out. You understand that? It's not going to last forever. You understand? So when we look at that, then what that means is that when the Bible shows that there's going to be a mingling of church and state all the way up until the end of time, that means America fits within the feet of iron and clay. And a time is going to come where America is no longer going to cause the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. What is it that will lead to this? Now, notice this statement from Inspiration. We are told no one has yet received the mark of the beast. Please don't go around telling folks they got the mark of the beast. <laughs> Inspiration is very definite. No one has yet received the mark of the beast. Amen. That's why I stop calling the mark of the beast Sunday worship. If you say the mark of the beast is Sunday worship, then that means people got it right now because people are definitely worshiping on Sunday. A better term would be the, the, the mark of the beast is Sunday observance enforced through church and state union. You'd be you would be more prophetically biblical if you said that than just simply saying the mark of the beast is Sunday worship. And by the way, we're going to have worship tomorrow and tomorrow's Sunday. So. Do you understand? Do you understand? Speak clearly, saints. Speak clearly. Amen. All right. So notice no one has yet received the mark of the beast. The testing time has not yet come. It says there are true Christians in every church not accepting the Roman Catholic communion. None are condemned until they have had the light and have seen the obligation of the fourth commandment. It says, but when, oh my, now watch this. It says, but when the decree shall go forth enforcing the counterfeit Sabbath and the loud cry of the third angel shall warn men against the worship of the beast and his image, the line will be clearly drawn between the false and the true. Now watch what happens next. All of this is coming from Evangelism 235. It says, then those who still continue in transgression will receive the mark of the beast. So when the Sunday law test comes to the people of God and when it comes to us and whatever decision the individual makes at that decision, they are going to have either the mark of the beast or the seal of God. If you want a reading on it, Great Controversy 605 makes it crystal clear. Now, look at what it says. With rapid steps, we are approaching this period. Now, what's going to be the sign? When Protestant churches shall unite with the secular power to sustain a false religion for opposing which their ancestors endured the fiercest persecution, then will the papal Sabbath be what? Enforced by the combined authority of what? Church and state, look at what it says, there will be a national apostasy which will end only in national ruin. You get it? Brothers and sisters, we're not far from this. I cannot give you a day, I cannot give you an hour, but I can definitely pay attention to the season. And I am telling you, we are not far from this. Everything is being put in place 
to bring ultimately the United States of America and this world to a state of national ruin as a result of national apostasy. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The question then that came up to my mind was this. What movement would prepare the way for America to commit national apostasy that would lead to national ruin? America's going to play a role in ultimately enforcing Sunday observance and bring everybody to pay homage to the papacy. That's basically what prophecy is just showing us. Hook, line, and sinker, very clear. Now, because of this, the question is, well, what are some agitations that would take place that would prepare the way for this? And there was one that was very clear. One of the things that is a massive part of the movement to ultimately bring us to a place where we are going to see ultimately this national apostasy take place is this movement right here. It's a movement of equality. The word equality has become a very important word in America, especially as of late. And the reality is when you think of equality, you think of images like this. This is now the new image of equality. You understand that? This is the image of equality today. When you think of it, there's nothing that is being agitated more worldwide. In fact, take a look at this. This is where you want to play the clip. Worldwide movement. Worldwide movement. And here's where it gets interesting. Because of the fact that this became such a massive agitation. I mean, nothing has swept our world like the movement of equality as revealed through the gay marriage movement. It has absolutely took our world by storm. And you have to remember, Jesus said one of the signs of the days of Noah was going to be the corruption of marriage. Remember, they were marrying and giving in marriage. And there are many ways that that's manifested, but one definitely is the new concept, of course, which is now sweeping our world and becoming exceedingly and abundantly acceptable, which is gay marriage. But here's what happened. Two days after the United States of America said, well, we're going to go ahead and do it. Remember, you see, I wish I could really go into all of it, but I know I can't because of time. We got some messages that's going to be uploaded on Audioverse very soon where we really go through America and history and all these things. But you will see that America, remember, it had two horns like a lamb. lamb. There was a time that America was very forthright in standing for biblical Christian principles. OK, that's why we still have the dollar that says in God we trust. All right. Today, you have to ask which God. But nevertheless, it's, it's there. There are things that are, are tended, you know, that are little signposts to let you know that our country was very much endorsing, inclusive of religion. And of course, allowing Christian principles to be the means by which things were governed. But a time was going to come where things were going to change. So after America made the decision that, listen, we're going to go ahead and marry everybody. Two days later, somebody said, well, you know what? Why two? It was almost like people were in a relay running position. And as soon as America said, all right, we're going to do this. Then immediately some people said, all right, let's go. And they said, why two? Why cannot it be three, four, five, five hundred? Why does it have to be two people? So now what it did was it paved the way for the same sex throuples. And this is what started to happen. This is the same sex throuples right here. These are actual pictures of people who started to push. So now the next push is for not just something in Utah, but something that can be done all throughout the United States of America. It, listen, if two men can marry each other and that's all right, why can't it be three? Why can't it be five? Why can't it be eight, 10, 20, 30? And we all get benefits and we all get to raise children and everything else. And what's happening is the religious climate of America is absolutely drastically dropping. Immorality is the new equality. 
And this is what is happening, brothers and sisters. Now, it didn't just go into same-sex troubles, but it started getting even deeper than that because, of course, you know, transgender became super popular. You know, what is so offensive about this is that this man who is known as, you know, Bruce Jenner, who now refers to himself as Caitlyn Jenner, he's being rewarded for taking this step. But there were other people. There was a woman who was persevering and playing the game, which I'm not an advocate of competitive sports, but she was still persevering to play the game of basketball while she had a brain tumor. She ultimately died. In other words, there were people who were much, much more worthy of getting an award for perseverance and, and going against all odds and all these other things. But brothers and sisters, you got to understand, America's trying to make a statement. So here it is now that this is becoming, again, the thing of the day. So it's not enough to be gay. It's not enough to get married and be gay. It's not enough to say, hey, why don't we do the thruples and all these other things. But you know what? I just think I decided I want to change myself. And I did a meeting the other day. And I did a meeting at one place, and I can't name the place because I know this will go public. But I remember that I did a meeting, and a young girl came to me. Precious young girl. I mean, she's not even a teenager, brothers and sisters. And she says, I think I want to be a man. And she says, and I want counsel and I want this. And she started going into all her rationale of why she believes. I remember C.D. Brooks did a sermon years ago. And C.D. Brooks says, and I wanted to contact Elder Brooks just to ask him, where can I get this source? He said that things would get so bad in the days of Sodom that the common sins of the days became easily boring. And therefore, awards would be given for somebody who could come up with the most newest base way to practice sin. That's just how bad Sodom got. All of a sudden, brothers and sisters, when it is now popular to be transgender, when it's now popular to be gay and all these other, all of a sudden we got folks coming out of the closets and we got everybody saying, oh, you know what? Yeah, 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 I was feeling this too. And all of a sudden, and we don't understand, listen, television and movies have been putting out psychological messages a long time ago. That's why God gave us a preservation power. He gave us a preservation method. He said that we are to cut these forms of false amusements off and that we are not to put these things in front of us and our children because today you can't even trust a so-called child sitcom. You don't know what they're teaching our children. And we will put those things in front of our children. SpongeBob SquarePants, Dora the Explorer, and Blue's Clues, and, and even VeggieTales. Brothers and sisters, we need to start understanding there are messages inspired by Satan, that maybe even innocent people will put before others thinking it's good when it is evil. For marvel not, even Satan shall come as an angel of light and his demons. And so we are living in a time we got to really be careful because this is the popular thing today, brothers and sisters. And we're not just seeing it in the world. We're seeing it in Adventism. We're seeing it in the church. If ever the people need to understand Christ, their righteousness, how Jesus can live out his righteous life within us and even purify our desires. I remember somebody came to me and said, it's all right. It's all right to be gay as long as it's in your heart. Just just don't fulfill it. I said, I'm, I thank God that's not the gospel. You tell me that I'm a man supposed to just want it all their life but can't perform it. That is a pathetic way to present it. I believe that when Jesus brings a man to a state, a woman to an estate where they are born again, God will even purify their desires. He will actually show them how to hate what they once loved and love what they once hated. That's the gospel I'm aware of from the Bible. 
So I believe we have a message to let the brethren know, listen, I don't care what your desires are right now. God can create in you a clean heart. Amen. God can help you love what he loves and hate what he hates, because that's the power that God has through the gospel. So here it is when we look at this. Now, this man right here is very interesting. His name is Dr. Paul McHugh, and he's the former psychiatrist in chief at John Hopkins Hospital. Now, what he put out there in relation to the commentary on uh, transgender is very interesting. Here's what he said. He says, yet he was making an argument about this issue of transgender. Here's what he said. Yet policymakers and the media are doing no favors either to the public or the transgendered by treating their confusions as a right in need of defending rather than as a mental disorder that deserves understanding, treatment and prevention. This is a man who literally is coming from a secular standpoint, and he's saying when individuals start beginning to talk about, you know, being a transgender and they want to go ahead and go through uh, sex orientation changes, he says that it's a mental disorder. It's not a right that needs to be exercised. It needs to be prevented. It needs to be treated. It needs to be counseled through. And ultimately, the individual needs to see this is a mental disorder. Now, look at what it says next. He says... At the heart of the problem is confusion over the nature of the transgendered. Sex change is biologically impossible. These are his words, come purely secular. He says sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinization women. So he says that's all that's really happening. You're not being changed from a man to a woman, a woman to a man. You can't do that. It's impossible. OK. And if you don't want to believe it from a biblical standpoint, th th this is the best of science. That's letting them know it is impossible. A man is a man. A woman is a woman. You can lengthen your hair. You can put, make things pop out of places it never was before. You can do all of that. <laughs> At the end of the day, you're still a man. You're still a woman. You've just become feminized or you've just become masculinized. You understand that? That's a message that needs to be taught because people are being lied to. People are actually believing that after their, their reassignment, they actually believe, I am now a woman. I am now a man. And they need education given in love, yet straight truth, to let them know, no, you are still a man. You are still a woman. You've just become masculinized or feminized. That's all that happened. Praise the Lord. All right. So look at what it says. It says people who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinization women. Claiming this as a civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention is in reality to collaborate with and promote a mental disorder. This is literally what the scientists are saying. OK. And the reason why this man is an authority, Dr. Paul McHugh, remember, former psychiatrist in chief at John Hopkins. John Hopkins Hospital was the first hospital in America that they did sex change reassignment. First hospital. So, I mean, they're really an authority on this. But then here's what happened. So notice Satan is just constantly trying to erase this very blessed gift called marriage to the point that it's not enough to do all these changes. But look at what happened next. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that there is even now something called marriage between human and animals? This is how much of a game Satan is absolutely enjoying to play with God's creation. Okay? It says here, the website marryyourpet.com states, this is a marriage of minds and companionship. You have no conjugal rights, and for sake of clarity, you are not permitted to sleep with your pet. They want to put that there. 
but they actually call it a marriage. And, you know, again, you can't presently go to a court and say, you know, issue me an official license or what have you. But this is the down spiral of where everything is leading to. And what is Satan trying to do at the end of the day? Completely erase the image of God from humanity. That's all he wants to do. He wants to completely erase the image of God from humanity. Why? Because I don't know if you remember that little statement in Steps to Christ, page 10. In Steps to Christ, page 10, we are told through the tenderest of earthly ties that human hearts could know, God has sought to reveal himself to us. You see, it was through marriage that God wanted us to understand what holiness really is. It was through marriage that God wanted us to understand the communion that he desires to have with his creation. And now this marriage communion is being directly attacked to the point. Look at this growth of same sex marriage in 2013. Then look at it in 2014 jumped from here to here. And then, of course, 2015 completely. This is why we're told great changes are soon to take place in our world and the final movements will be rapid ones. And the question is, what would happen when it would get here? You see, in other words, how can the United States of America get to a place where it can become this persecuting power to the people of God? And it was through these agitations that we got a small picture of it, because watch this. Get the sound. Notice this next video clip right here. Observe it. New concerns about religious liberty. The Obama administration's top lawyer says that if the Supreme Court redefines marriage, religious colleges and universities could lose their tax exempt status. Think about that. And that is not all. Shannon Breen joins us now live from Washington with Minus. Good morning, Shannon. Hi, Martha. Well, it was a moment that flew a bit under the radar last week, but it is significant, and religious freedom advocates did not miss it. During the arguments over the constitutionality of same-sex marriage, Justice Alito asked if religious colleges and universities that continue to advocate for traditional marriage might be in danger of losing their tax-exempt status if the court finds a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. The governor's uh, government's top lawyer, Solicitor General Donald Borelli, responded, quote, it's certainly going to be an issue. I don't deny that. I don't deny that, Justice Alito. It is going to be an issue. Logically, the position of the U.S. government uh, expressed through the Solicitor General would extend to churches at some point, would extend to public employees, would extend to anyone holding a traditional view of marriage and would force them to compromise their views on that, force them to compromise their religious convictions, and if they don't compromise, well, that view, that oppressive view of conformity will threaten them with fines. And just last week, speaking at the Women in the World Summit, Watch this 2016 one. contender Hillary Clinton said this about those who have religious convictions on social issues. Deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed. Well, we reached out to the White House for any type of clarification or explanation about what the Solicitor General meant in responding to Justice Alito's question. They declined comment. Martha? Well, that's going to be something to watch. Shannon, thank you very much. And so you can see the landscape. You can see where it's all leading. Our presidential elects coming up, you know, and what have you, they're making it clear this is our position and so on. Um, in our next presentation, I'm going to talk about Dr. Ben Carson, not in the form of slander, but I'm going to talk about a reality of his movement and what, how it's going to affect Seventh-day Adventists.
So we're going to talk about these things because they need to be talked about. All right. And we need to understand it. So what God is saying is that, look, gay marriage issues is threatening religious freedom. In fact, it was Satan's most diabolical way to pave the way for Revelation 13 to come to pass. What was going to be the agitation that could pave the way for everything else to come to pass? And we're literally watching it all happen right now because now this web has become so deeply weaved. You have to understand. Did you see the article? What they said? They said, especially any institutions government funded. Any institutions that are going through these things. Remember, even the Seventh-day Adventist Church, presently, the way we're structured, we're a 501c3, brothers and sisters. Okay, we always look for that when we want to give our donations and what have you, but we need to understand this potential consequences with it. Because now we're going to have to answer some serious questions when it comes to who we're going to hire to teach in our schools. Who do we hire to go ahead and teach in our various administration offices and what have you? And if somebody is gay, married, and lives an openly transgender life or whatever, it can be illegal for us to tell them, no, we cannot hire you to work in our ABC. You understand that? So it's something where we're going to be impacted as a church, no doubt about it. And if ever there was a time to repeat the words, whoever's on the Lord's side, stand here. It's right now. Because that's exactly what happened to this lady right here. She made a decision. She said, look, I cannot violate my conscience. And even though I'm not getting into the intricacies of the decision of, of what she did, what I see is that this is how this thing is going to play out. She stood upon her religious conviction, even though it violated her law. And it wasn't like they fired her. They just could have said, listen, we just got to fire you. But instead, it ended up becoming something where obviously she ended up in prison. A Kentucky county clerk who has become a symbol of religious opposition to same sex marriage was jailed Thursday after defying a federal court order to issue licenses to gay couples. And it just gives us a picture of what kind of agitations God's people are getting ready to face. And this is why I keep saying to you, a final crisis is upon us. We've been preaching about this thing for years, some of us more than others. But we've been preaching this and showing this and going prophecy after prophecy, reality after reality. God's people have been hearing it for a long time. The people say amen. Then we go back to sleep. And now it's coming up on us. And this thing is real. This thing is real, brothers and sisters. And the question is, what do we do now as God's people? Because this is the agitation. We have to understand when the Pharisees afterward questioned him concerning the lawfulness of divorce. Jesus pointed his hearers back to the marriage institution as ordained at creation because of the hardness of your hearts. He said, Moses suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. He referred them to the blessed days of Eden when God pronounced all things very good. Then marriage and the Sabbath had their origin. What kind of institutions? Twin institutions for the glory of God in the benefit of humanity. Adventist homepage 340. And so we see that marriage and the Sabbath are very much linked. In fact, I would use the term indissolubly linked. Why? Because that's what inspiration says. The Sabbath and the family were alike instituted in Eden. And in God's purpose, they are what? Indissolubly linked together. Meaning, if you hit the Sabbath... You hit marriage. If you hit marriage, you hit the Sabbath. So we are seeing a very well patterned, well organized, though diabolical attack upon the marriage and the family institution. And as far as America is concerned, it has forever been changed forever. 
So because of that, we're seeing that America is going down that slippery slope of what equates to national apostasy. And it's going to lead ultimately to national ruin. You see, brothers and sisters, we were told. When Pope John Paul II wrote Dies Domini, he revealed to the world the methodology that the papacy has always used to pass Sunday laws. The attack on marriage does not stop at marriage. It's going to lead to the twin. It's going to lead to none other than the Sabbath issue. So it's kind of like God is allowing us, those of us who are students of prophecy, he's allowing us to get a picture of what's getting ready to come. So everything we see, even all the way down to the sister being put in jail, except the persecutions and whatnot, he's, he's allowing us to see that because God is saying, this is how things are going to go down when it comes to the Sabbath question. So I put this back here. I've shared this with you even here at Southwest Youth Con. I remember sharing this with you from years ago. So I would imagine many of you are familiar, even though there's new faces here. But watch. Pope John Paul II in Dies Domini, what he did was he revealed how Rome has always passed Sunday laws. This is what it states. When through the centuries she has made laws concerning Sunday rest, when he says she, talking about the Roman Catholic Church, the church, that's the she, has had in mind above all the work of what? Servants and workers. So notice, whenever Rome wanted to pass Sunday laws, what they would do is always focus on the people. Focus on the benefits of a Sunday law. Help them to understand, listen, if you agree with us to pass Sunday laws, this is what's going to help you. This is beneficial to you as workers and families. So here's what it says. It says, certainly not because this work was any less worthy when compared to the spiritual requirements of Sunday observance, but rather because it needed greater regulation to lighten its burdens and thus enable everyone to keep the Lord's day holy. So they wanted to do it where there was no partiality. Everybody gets the same benefits. And that's why the best way to do it is not to say, observe Sunday according to your conscience. That's what Rome discourages. They say, no, make it law, because if you make it law, everybody gets the benefits. It's very diabolical. Now watch. It says, in this matter, my predecessor, Pope Leo XIII, in his encyclical Rerum Novorum, spoke of Sunday rest as a worker's right which the state must guarantee. Therefore, also in the particular circumstances of our time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. So this is the crisis that's coming upon us. Now, the reason why I bring this slide up is because America's in trouble. America's in trouble. We have sweeping crime. We have police brutality. We have a horrific economy. We have issue upon issues as it relates to even the very things in our society as it relates to business, nature, our air is impure. All sorts of problems that are happening all throughout U.S. And therefore, the question is, how can we solve these problems? And the answer is, he's coming. <laughs> I wish I could laugh with you. Because I can guarantee you, those who laugh now, you won't be laughing when he gets here. What I'm telling you is he's coming. And when he comes, he's coming to be a solution to the problem. This is how he's being viewed. That's why he has a six-point agenda of what he's going to address to Congress. But notice, it says here, uh, September 2015, Philadelphia, USA. And it says, World Meeting of Families. He's coming to talk to the families. Yes, he's going to talk with Congress, but he's there to talk with the people. Why? Because Revelation 13 shows us in verse 14 that they need to make the image of the beast. The people. 
It's the people that's going to be key in establishing ultimately the image of the beast, which was church and state. The people are going to say we want it. And he's just simply going to prepare Congress to say you get it. So when you look at the six point agenda, when you look at the things that he's going to address, everything from economy. Oh, that's interesting. The beast power wants to talk about the economy so that it can make it easier to put people in a place where they can't buy or they can't sell. Everything makes sense, brothers and sisters. It's all coming together right in front of our faces. You remember last year, Pope Francis says opening businesses on Sundays is not beneficial for society because the priority should be not economic, but human. And that the stress should be on families and friendships, not commercial relationships. So he's put it out there last year. Now he's coming this year to hammer it in. And what is he doing? He's coming to bring a solution to the problems of life. But do you know what I learned? Do we really have problems? Yes. Are there real problems in this world? Yes. yes, but did you know? Did you know that the gospel is a wonderful simplifier of life's problems? It is not that the world doesn't have problems. It's not that the church doesn't have problems. The question is, how are these problems going to be solved? And so the question is, how can it be done? Because he's coming on his agenda so that he can ultimately show how the problems of life can be solved. And ultimately, it's going to lead to a combining back of church and state. Pope Francis needs the United States of America right now. He needs them. And that's why this meeting is so powerful to us. But what I think is more powerful is what do we do about it? Now, there are a lot of ways to respond to a coming crisis. There are a lot of ways when we see prophecy being fulfilled. But now we get to the most favorite part of my study. And that question is, how did Jesus respond when he saw prophecy being fulfilled? And I want you to see what the Bible says in Mark, the first chapter. You see, in Mark, the first chapter, we're just going to bring out these final points and then we're going to prepare to go into our second session. When we go into our second session, we're going to talk about how we can really be a solution to the problems. There's big problems coming to this world, big problems coming to America, big problems that's ultimately going to come to us personally, big problems that's even going to come to the church. But God has a solution. But I want you to see what the Bible says. When Jesus saw prophecy being fulfilled... The question is, what did he do? Because I believe whatever Jesus did is what we should do because he's our pattern man. And the Bible says in the book of Mark, chapter one, we're looking at verses 14 and 15. And I want you to see very clearly what Christ did. Watch this. The Bible says in the book of Mark one, verses 14 and 15, it says, now, after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee. And what was he doing? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. I want you to notice that the more that Christ saw prophecy being fulfilled is the more Christ began to preach the gospel and counter the work of Satan. Amen. This is not to be overlooked. Because there's some people that see prophecy being fulfilled and they say, man, I'm gonna give me a country home. I'm getting out of the city. I'm getting into the country and I'm going to get as far away as I can off the grid P.O. box. Nobody knows where I live. 
And there are some people that are doing that thinking they do with God's service. Now, brothers and sisters, I have a country home. You know, I always like to balance that out because some ministers make light of country living. And I don't appreciate that. And God will deal with those ministers because that is a message that God needs to have lifted up more before the people. God has called us from a long time ago to get out of the cities as fast as possible. 1885, the prophet of God says the time is coming when God's people should get out of the city. 1900, the time has come. How do you miss that? There are people that are actually ignorant enough. And I'm going to say this. There are people, ministers, people who are responsible leaders and preachers and teachers of the word of God that are actually telling congregations that we are to wait until America tries to pass a Sunday law and then get out of the city. If you just sit down and think about that, that's ridiculous. That doesn't even make any sense. How are you going to wait till a Sunday law passed and then go around talking about, let's get a realtor? Let's start looking. Let's go ahead. Country Living page nine says one of the reasons to get the property is so that we can start growing food because the time of buying and selling is going to be a serious issue. How are you going to wait till the crisis come and then you buy your land? Now you got to till it and you're going to have to wait at least a year before you probably eat from it. In other words, it's not sensible. God wants his people out right now. And brother, I am learning something. I'm going to say this to you. Don't worry. We're getting ready to close and I'm going to bring it to the next one. Let me tell you something. Right now, the Lord has blessed, uh, you know, our missionary training school in New Hampshire. The Lord has allowed some people to come our way. And these are people with both money and power. And they have come and they said, you know, we read that there's supposed to be a restaurant work to be done in the Northeast. Uh, we're willing to fund that. Amen. Somebody said, you know, we, there's supposed to be a food factory. And they said, we're willing to fund that. But what they did was they said, while we have the funding and all these other things, there are some things that we're not fully aware of as we should be as it relates to what God counsels us on how to set up a true good outpost. So would you help us? So we said, yes, we would. So Brother Wilbur, Brother Waller and myself, we all decided we're going to take the, the little booklet called Health Food Ministry by Ellen White. We took the book Health Food Ministry and we read it cover to cover because we knew we were going to counsel with the men. We wanted to give them straight counsel. When I went through the book Health Food Ministry... I remember I told my wife this. I went to my bride. I said, honey, I have learned one thing very, very clearly in my mind. I said, God really means what he says. And if we don't do what God says, he will leave us to our own devisings. And I told her, I said, it has never been more. I have never seen the spirit of prophecy speak so powerfully. On this is why God raised up the restaurant work. And if we get away from this, it is better to shut down the restaurant. The more that I started reading those questions, Lord have mercy. Now, brothers and sisters, why do I bring that point up? Because we were told in 1903, get out of the cities as fast as possible. 1900, get out of the cities as fast as possible. And God's people keep laxing. We keep waiting and we keep coming up with these strange ideas and we think we can do something in Sodom. Remember, God told us not to locate in Sodom to save Sodom. God means what he says, brothers and sisters. You and I can do whatever we want to do with his counsels, but I believe, as Bill Lehman said one time, he says, you can argue with God, but I don't think you'll win. <laughs> we have to understand God has very clear, straight messages. And if the door is open to do his will, you need to go through the door while it remains open. Now, why do I bring that point up? Because when Jesus saw prophecy being fulfilled, what did he do? The Bible says he gave the gospel. 
It was the solution to the realities of what was happening around him. And there are principles based on him giving the gospel that we need to study because I'm going to show you how did Christ respond to his final crisis. You know, Jesus had a final crisis. Jesus had a final crisis in his life on earth. And there were steps that Christ took in those closing scenes that prepared him so that he could finish his work. And his father would say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so in our next session, this session, we talked about the prophetic reality of what's coming. We see national apostasy leads to national ruin. We see national apostasy has well progressed even in this very country. And remember, everything starts here and then mushrooms out to every other country. So we are very much living in the very closing scenes of earth's history and God wants something done about it, but he wants us to do it intelligently. And so it is that we are going to have prayer so we can ask the Lord, Lord, please show me how to practically, realistically prepare for this final crisis. Because remember, the whole theme of our sessions together, my workshops are entitled Christ, our example. I want to look at the example of Jesus, how he responded to the final crisis. And then by the grace of God, may we respond the same way. And if it's your desire to say, Lord, I want to respond to this very clear, very up and coming final crisis that's getting ready to come to the people of God in this world. Lord, I want to do whatever it takes that I may respond as Jesus respond. And if that's your declaration, that's your desire and that's your covenant you're making with God, I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. And as you stand to your feet. I want you to know that Christ stands with you. We got some serious steps we got to get ready to take. And I believe the Lord is going to bless us even beyond our expectations. So why don't we go ahead and let's bow our heads and let's have ourselves a word of prayer. Loving Father, we thank you so much for what you showed us. Lord, there's so much more to show. But I believe we can see very clearly from your word that national apostasy leads to national ruin. And Lord, we can see that this very, very country that you marked in Bible prophecy as a place that would represent even the horns that was like a lamb, that one day it would begin to speak like a dragon. And a time will come where ultimately, even in this very country, we're going to see national apostasy that will lead to national ruin. It's our desire to be a people prepared to meet our God, to show others how to do the same thing. And I thank you for the simplicity of your word. Please, Lord, let it be settled ever so deeply within our hearts that by your grace, we will do only what Jesus did as he saw his final crisis coming. And I thank you that you have heard this prayer. And I trust also that you have answered it. For we ask it all in Jesus name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.